Welcome to the Blazing Ember podcast, where we aim to amplify the voices of Latino professionals. We, Diana and Maria, founded this podcast to explore unspoken rules and all the ships, leadership, mentorship, sponsorship, and allyship with Latino leaders. We are here to ignite your path to success with valuable insights. Bienvenidos. Today, we're talking with Roberto Concepcion Jr., who is employment counsel at Hertz, board member of Latino Justice, and a recent children's book author. Thank you so much for joining us, Roberto. We're so happy to have you on this podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Welcome, welcome. So we have a ton to talk about. You've had a very exciting and interesting career, and we'd love to just get started with the quick highlights of what that's been. Let's just take a a trek back in time to your college education, where you started, I guess, your formal education. Yeah. So I will just start off by recognizing that my sort of educational professional journey has been one of twists and turns. So I went to undergrad at the Cooper Union for chemical engineering, then as we had the pleasure of attending at the same time. And so I realized through internships that engineering wasn't really for me, but I didn't know what I wanted to do after undergrad. And I had the benefit of having a physics professor who was also a patent attorney. And frankly, he had shared with us how much money you can make as an attorney or specifically as an IP attorney. and that was what sold it to me. So I decided I'm going to go to law school. I'm going to go to law school for IP. Particularly if you're a patent attorney, you have to have a, a science background, for example. And so I just thought it made sense. And then I actually attended law school, took a patent law course, did the equivalent of a summer internship at an IP boutique firm and realized this is not for me at all. No offense to those IP attorneys out there. And I just had the luxury of taking an employment discrimination course when I was in my second year of law school and just loving it. And so I decided I'm going to actually pursue this. But the economy had different plans for me. So I graduated law school in 2009, which, as we all know, was not a great year from an economy perspective. And so a lot of law firms at that time were deferring their associates, asking them to return in a year or two. The law firm I was supposed to work at actually withdrew our offers. And so I was essentially scrambling to figure out what I was going to do next. So I had been working with a law school professor doing a year-long clinic, and she was generous enough to create a fellowship for me that would allow me to stay on with the clinic, support the clinic students, and, and help her teach one of her courses. So I did that, still was trying to figure out what I would do next. And so because the economy still wasn't great, I ended up moving to California without sort of any connection there. But there was a civil rights fellowship that would allow me to work at a plaintiff side firm that was doing class action work, employment class action work. And for me, I thought it was a great opportunity because I was going to have the opportunity at the very beginning of my legal career to lead top class action collective action cases in a way that I didn't, I wasn't sure that I was going to get that same training elsewhere at the time. So I moved to California, did that for a year and a half, ultimately didn't think California was for me. When I was there though, I had worked on a pro bono case with Latino Justice, which as you mentioned, I'm now a board member of. 
And we had worked on a pro bono case. It was an amicus brief, I believe, so the Fifth Circuit on a case related to anti-immigrant housing legislation and really just enjoyed the work there. And so when they had shared with me that there was an opening, an attorney opening role and asked whether I knew of anyone, I sort of just raised my hand and said, me. So I moved back to New York. I stayed with Latino Justice for about two and a half, three years, litigating a number of civil rights cases, including in employment, but not exclusively. It was a, the work that we did was really impactful, but ultimately, again, I really knew that I wanted to focus on employment. And I thought that eventually I'd want to transition in-house. So I moved to a small law firm that focused on employment, that represented both employees and management, although realistically it was mostly employees. And then decided to make another transition to man a management side firm just because, again, if I was going to move in-house, I knew that I needed that practical experience of what it meant to represent corporations. So I moved to Jackson Lewis, which is a national employment firm, for about three years or so. Great experience. I think given where I was in my professional journey, I think I was probably a year or two shy of potentially being elevated for partnership. I had the the benefit or the luxury of working with one partner in particular who really wanted me to think about my professional development, client development to set me up for, for a potential partnership. But I knew that law firm life wasn't for me for a number of reasons. So I decided to take another detour. I went to NYU where I investigated internal complaints of discrimination and harassment, which was an incredible opportunity, loved the educational environment, higher ed environment. And I was frankly on probably one of the most diverse teams I've ever, racially diverse teams that I've ever been on, but ultimately knew that I needed a bigger challenge. And so I I was like, this is the time for me to move in house. It just so happened that I was actually speaking with a former colleague of mine and she had shared with me that another attorney who previously worked at Jackson Lewis was hiring for an in-house employment counsel role at WeWork. And so she and she connected the two of us. We worked at the same firm, but we never worked together. And as they say, the rest was history. And so I was at WeWork for four years, three of which focusing exclusively employment legal issues. The last year I dual had it. So half of my portfolio was advising a number of the business functions on employment legal issues. And then the second half of my portfolio was heading up the organization's DEI strategy. So really an incredible opportunity, one that I frankly had never envisioned, but really was in some ways was an extension of both my personal and professional work and really gave me incredible exposure to, to, to leadership and um, trying to move the needle in, in a number of these DEI efforts. And then most recently, the person who had actually hired me at WeWork had moved on to Hearst shortly thereafter. And she had shared that they were looking to to bring someone else on the team. I really enjoyed working with her and really enjoyed the the prospect of, of working for a company that had such a diverse portfolio and a number of different functions. So now it's been a, a few months and I know I certainly made the right decision. So I know that's quite the, the journey. 15 that years. That was a trek. That um, was not a journey. <laughs> it requires stamina. Up the mountain. It requires stamina for sure. But, but you're yeah. 110 years old because you've been. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm he doesn't look it. 
He doesn't look it. (laughs) I mean, there's just so many things to unpack from that, right? I mean, there's just so many. I think and I hope that our listeners understand that your path does not have to be a straight path. I mean, you said zig and zagging when you kind of, it was twisty and and crooked and all that stuff. It means you don't have to take a straight path, right? But throughout it all, and I also heard, and we'll touch on these topics, I also heard people who pulled you in, right? That your work showed others that you would be a good value add to them, right? So you had Latino justice pulling you, you had the the partner who was trying to get you ready to be partner. And now you have this person who left her, had an opportunity and you went for it. Right. And so now the professor, Maria, right? The professor professor. who created that clinic. Talk about somebody not only talking the talk, but walking the walk. That's a big deal. Yeah. And I think that's so important. I don't want to cut you off, Maria. No, that's fine. But no, it's a good point. I forgot. I forgot the professor, right? So let's talk about, so here is some, let's assume there's a listener who says, oh, I don't want to do what I want to do anymore. Or I want to move and I don't know how to do it. Or I'm working at a large firm. I want to go to a mid-sized firm, but is that going to hurt me? All the thoughts that go through our minds as we're beginning to think about transitions. So can you talk a bit about Really, what was your intentionality as you were going through these roles, right? What was your end game? And you don't have to have one because that's okay too, but just kind of what was your intentionality? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question because what one of the things that I was going to say was for every, at every step of this process or this journey, I've been really intentional. And again, some of the circumstances were not of my own choosing or doing, but I wanted to make the most of certain opportunities. And so I knew at the at a very early stage that I wanted to move in-house. And I think it's important for people to just frankly be honest with themselves about what it is that they want to do, either short-term or long-term, right? Because what you may ultimately want to do in the future can change any number of times. And so I think it's just about one, being honest with yourself about where you see yourself going, what you'd like to achieve. And frankly, it's also important to know what you don't want to do or to pursue. And so I think it's just about setting yourself up for success at every step of the way so that you can accomplish that goal, right? And it may be your next step is automatically going to be to pivot to that new role. Or in my instance, you may have a number of different stepping stones, right? You need to, you may need to take two or three steps before you get to the your ultimate goal, but it's being able to identify what that ultimate goal is so then you can come up with the roadmap to to get to that point. And then I guess talk a little bit about the folks who helped you, right? How did yeah. you attract them? How did they Did you say you and not say verbally, you are my mentor, but did yeah. you did you go after them and say, "Look, I need help here. I need help that how did you build those relationships? Yeah, no, it's, it is a great question. And I think one of the key points that I'd like to make here is just the incredible importance of relationships. To your point about specifically identifying someone as a mentor, I have typically not done that. I've just benefited from those mentorship, sponsorship relationships without actually necessarily identifying them as such. I think first and foremost, your work product has to speak for itself, right? No one is going to put their reputation on the line, their relationships on the line, unless they know 
first and foremost, that your work product is strong. So that's just the baseline. Table six. That's table um, six. And I think, look, and I think a lot of the work that we do is also, in addition to being relationship-based, like people want to be able to work with people that they enjoy being around, right? And so like, we don't all have the same personality. We don't all have sunny dispositions, but I think people are going to want to want to connect with you in, in some way that is more than just transactional. And so, as you mentioned, I've certainly benefited from having people throughout this journey that have recognized the value of my work, that have enjoyed working with me and have frankly taken the risk or seen my potential and decided, right. you know what, let's let me invest in, in him. Because for everyone that's done something for me, they have made that decision to make an investment in me and pour resources into me in ways that they didn't have to. And I and again, I think that all started that all stemmed from one, the quality of my work, but two, the relationships that I had in, in invested or created and built with them. But I think that boils down a little bit to trust, right? I mean, how sure. important as lawyers is trust, right? You you always have a client that you're working for, right? Whether you're in-house, you're outside counsel, you're in the government position, you're leading, you're doing, you're advising, and it all boils down to trust. And so it's something that I think even at an early stage in your career, you figured out without even thinking of that way, right? Is you're doing good work so the person can trust you with valuable information. And then they're starting either creating a position or giving you the opportunity because they trust that aren't going to either not, it's not fail. It's not about failure because you do make mistakes, but you're not going to disappoint to some extent, right? That you're going to at least try your best. And I think that comes down to trustworthiness. And it's something that has probably gotten you all the way to where you are now is if you knew somebody and somebody knew you from another experience, from another context in the law firm, they heard of you, they trust who you are, right? And this is, and you did that before we had conversations that we do today about sponsorship, mentorship, getting allies, uh, your personal brand, right? How many years ago, decades ago, when you were starting those relationships with something like your brand, there was no, there was probably no Instagram. We had Facebook. Right. Right? That's very true. And I think there's, it's so important to keep that in mind when you're just going through life, wherever you may be, especially if you're starting off is just, is who are you as a person? And I think I'll say as somebody who's, who's known you for a long time, I think, you've been very secure as who you are as a person, right? The the basic fundamentals of who Roberto is were set long ago. And it's just, it's only gotten better. So that's awesome. Dan, I actually want to follow up on something that you mentioned about trust. I mean, this is, trust is critical regardless of the sort of like industry context, but especially when you think of practicing at a law firm, practicing in-house, when you're working with clients, trust is critical. And how do you build that trust? It takes time. I think ultimately, especially the more that you are in the trenches with those clients and they understand that your goal is really to support them, not to serve as an obstacle, which I know that sometimes lawyers have that reputation of being barriers as opposed to true business partners. But I I think part of that is also just being able to be authentically yourself, right? And so for me, part of the way that I build my relationships with, including with leaders and business partners, 
is really being true to who I am at every step of the way. And that includes sort of sharing my story, being personable with them. And I think, I mean, for me, it has been successful thus far. And it's just been very true to to the way that I work and I operate because I don't know how to operate any other way. I have a very like people first mentality. And I, and I think that it just shows in terms of the way that I operate. That's great. That's really awesome because I think it's hard sometimes, right? As a Latino to step in or as an other in any, right? To step in and to feel that who you are and what you are is accepted. So I'm sure you've had those moments. How do you navigate those moments, right? Where it's, oh, can I be Roberto today? Yeah, no, I mean, (laughs) it's very real. And and look, in, in terms of the idea of like imposter syndrome, I think it's important to recognize that it's not that you reach a certain level or, or a certain position within your professional journey and that it automatically goes away. I will say that I still very much suffer from imposter syndrome. And I think it just all goes back to a sense of belonging. I think it's important for people to recognize that it is because of their hard work that they've earned a seat at that table and that they belong at that table just as much as anyone else. But yeah, I mean, as a Latino, gay and now parent, there are certainly times that I've sort of struggled with how to be authentic with those intersecting identities while also making sure that leadership recognizes the my the work that I'm offering. And so have there been times that I've been really that I've asked myself whether to share my story? Absolutely. I still remember there was a time when I was presenting to the legal function about some of the work that we were doing on the DEI front. This is even before I I took on the global head role. And I had the benefit of having a supervisor who had shared with me because we had done a practice run. And she was just like, look, the material you're sharing is fine, but there is no opportunity there for Roberto to sort of show himself authentically. And so she had mm-hmm. encouraged me and frankly given me permission to really make sure that I was connecting the material with my own personal story. And so I did. It was, I think, one of the first times that I had to do that so explicitly in front of such a large group of people, which was terrifying, but also felt like a also felt like very much like a release. And I think post that, I was just like, I need to continue doing this. There's no other way for me to do this work than by being authentically myself. And so- That's amazing. Yeah, it is. It was very much a release. Can you believe what's what, as I'm hearing this story, I had the same moment about- a year ago, which is crazy considering how many years we've both been in practice and in the professional world. Same thing, same scenario. Important meeting. I knew my scripts, my thoughts, forwards, backwards. I had questions prepped. I prepped my own questions, answered my own questions. (laughs) And then I rehearsed it for somebody. And they said, that's great, Diana but I have no idea who you are. And I was like, what do you mean? I'm here. I'm the one presenting. And they're like, you've told me nothing about you. And I had to go and rework it. And I had, it was like this, the same thing for me. I was like, I said who I was, 
And then I moved in. And that's the reason you should believe what I'm telling you is because of who I am and because of the experience that I'm bringing to this table. And it felt weird establishing it, right? Because you're like, you don't think you need to, but because we live in a world that potentially is biased, right? That you're coming to a scenario where people have maybe misconceptions of of who you are, or maybe just seriously don't know who you are, right? That's such an important step. And the more that you do that, the easier it gets to get past this imposter syndrome. It just becomes like, an automatic thing, but how many years did it take to get to that point? Wow. Right. It's, it's Very long. incredible. Much longer than should have. Too yeah. long. Too yeah. long. Yeah. 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 Cause you're talking a few years ago, right? I mean, that's just. I'm talking a, last year, Maria. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is like you know, 2022, right? It, sh- it shouldn't happen. And I just want to go back to a point that Roberto said, cause I, I agree with everything you both said is that seat at the table. There were oftentimes when I would walk into a room and I would sit in the back, right? Or I would sit on the side and people would say to me, no, come sit at the table. Okay. And I would kind of wander over. And I have to tell you, at some point in my career, I was like, I belong at the table. And so I would find a seat at the table, even if it meant going to get a chair and pulling it up next to someone, I was going to sit at that table. And I think that is something that's very important. That is both being authentic and taking that damn seat because you belong there. It's your seat. Move over. (laughs) (laughs) So we have covered a lot of ground already, right? But I want to dig into something that I find super interesting, which is this new phase that you've, it's not even that new, right? You you became a dad, right? This is not going to be a few years because I've lost track of time because of the pandemic. How many years now? I mean, it's about to be four. Oh my gosh. Right? (laughs) Four years yesterday. And, and then you launched a book and I'd love to learn. Well, I know, but, you know, tell the audience, share with them what you've been up to and why you've been up to all these great things. Yeah. So, yeah, so I would say, so four years ago, my daughter was born. She was born right before the pandemic. I always knew that I wanted to be a dad. I always assumed that I would have a partner first and then create a family together. And I think I just had reached a point in my life, both personally and professionally, where I was ready to start a family. And I was willing to start that family on my own and then welcome a partner. And that's exactly what happened. And so luckily, I had the support of my family, my close friends who are now my extended family or my chosen family, actually. And it's just been, it's been both a challenging yet beautiful journey. And I can't imagine having done it any other way. And then I think I would say, with re- as it relates to the book, shortly after Amina was born, I wanted to be really intentional about what it meant to be a parent, a dad, to not just a child, but a young girl, and more specifically, a girl of color. And I think girls in particular, and girls of color even more specifically, at a very young age, are taught what they should be, how they should act. And I really wanted to figure out the best way for me to create an environment in which Amina knew that she could thrive, regardless of the fact that regardless of any of her identities. 
and the traditional expectations that others may have of her because of that. And so one of the ways that I wanted to sort of tackle those traditional expectations was through our nighttime affirmation. So every night before bed, I would have, well, I would tell Amina now that she can speak, she'll repeat after me. She says that she's smart. Or sorry, excuse me. She starts off by saying she's strong. She's smart. She's important. She's beautiful. She's brave. She's blessed. And she's going to change the world. She'll say it in English. She'll say it in English. (laughs) Then she'll say it in Spanish. And I made sure to not have beautiful be the first affirmation. It's there, but it's not the first one. Just because, yes, I, I think Amina is beautiful, but I want her to recognize that her worth is not linked to her beauty. There are so many beautiful attributes of her that are not related to the to superficial looks because that she is much more than her beauty. And so I want her to be able to own that and recognize that as early as possible. So there's that piece. And then separately, I was just, as I would read a book to her every night, I was just frankly underwhelmed by some of the children's books out there. And we're living in an environment in which there are more children's books with primary characters who are animals than who are like people of color. And so I wanted to have or share Amina, share with Amina a story in which she could see herself represented. And so I decided to write one. So it is a book about four princesses, most many of whom are of color, who are challenging traditional expectations of girls and who are finding their voice and following their dreams. And it features Amina as the as the main princess. It also includes me as as, as the single dad and then includes families of different structures, because I also wanted to create a book in which we are celebrating and normalizing families of different structures. And so to this day, I'll read the book to Amina and Amina will point to her character. She'll identify me, she'll identify my mom. And to have her see herself in this story as an astronaut, for example, I think it's just really important to, for her to see so that she knows that it's actually reality. That's amazing. I'm going to do a commercial. Our listeners, please go buy More Than a Crown by Roberto Concepcion Jr. Please. Available on Amazon, right? Yes, yes. Thank you so much. Of course. And I think, I I don't even know when I plan something out, sometimes I start sketching things out. Like, how did you even sketch out the plan? I'm going to challenge norms, non-traditional princess non-traditional families, right? I mean, there were so many things that you touch upon in that book. And the book is so beautifully written and illustrated. I have a copy. So I think it it really is a nice welcome change to the books, the children's books that I have in my family. It definitely stands out as a as an outlier by comparison to everything else. And my granddaughter has it in Ireland. <laughs> I love that. It's international. It's international. Love that. For me, look, I I will admit that the original manuscript looks very different than the ultimate story that was published. I worked with a self-publishing company. And I think when I first thought of the story, it was going to be one that was still empowering without necessarily having the girls 
have to face traditional expectations of them. And so when I was working with an editor, they talked about sort of how, what the flow of a book should be. And so in terms of the girls having to face those traditional expectations sort of like head on, that was something that, that there was a lot of back and forth about and ultimately was a welcome introduction into or a welcome addition to the book so that it is sort of like much more e- explicit. But I think for me, as part of the book journey, to your point, then I really wanted to make sure that I had ownership of the story and just as importantly, the illustrations. And so that was one of the benefits of self-publishing, just because I was ultimately the decision maker every step of the way, which was both empowering and at times overwhelming. But that being said, the final product is one that I just like love and adore. And so it was worth every step of this two-year journey. That's awesome. And I think it's great that the world gets to see the side of you, right? Like you you are a lawyer, right? That's what you've been doing. That's your profession. But I think part of the the Roberto that I've always known, right, has been creative, right? Like we didn't even touch upon his amazing salsa dancing skills, which we, <laughs> we will leave online that. for cocktail parties and other discussions. But there's a lot of creativity in, in, bundled up in Roberto, right? There's You get a lot <laughs> from him. And I am so, a lot. <laughs> What did you say? But I am a lot. He's a lot. No, but I think a lot in general. (laughs) And I think that's important because I think so many of us have other things that are important to us. And sometimes you get really bogged down in, I have to work and work and work or that you don't find time for it, not recognizing that it fulfills you as well, right? I mean, in your case, I'm sure it was wonderful to do this, right? It's wonderful to see your daughter be happy and be thrilled that she can see herself in the book, right? But it also ties to your DEI side, right? This view of equity and that the world is bigger than just us, right? And if you're looking at a nuclear family or an extended family, it is much bigger than that. And we do look different. So I think it's great. And I think people need to think about kind of what brings them that joy and where they go from there. So I'm going to ask you a question that we ask everybody. And we know Amina makes your heart blaze, but we need to know what makes your ember blaze, right? What is it about you that keeps you going? It's a great question. I mean, I will say that Amina is certainly core and critical to that piece, I would say. And this may very well just be from my own family upbringing. It could be the Puerto Rican roots. I find that family just really gives me a lot of purpose. And for every person, family can be defined differently. When I say family, I I mean my immediate family, but also my chosen family. I think that they are my life's purpose. And it is they who sort of pour into my cup in ways that I I need. And and my hope is that I'm able to pour into their cups in the same way. And I think to to bring it back to to something, a point that I don't know if it was Dan or, or Maria that you had raised is that, yes. We are practicing attorneys. We are legal professionals. There are some people who tie who they are to the work that they do. For me, it is what I do. I enjoy doing it. But my life is much more than just the work that I do. And frankly, I find my purpose outside, oftentimes outside of of work. And so I find it incredibly important 
to find that right balance just because I need to be able to exercise self-care and feed my soul in, in ways that allow me to do the work that I do. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Roberto. We really enjoyed learning so much of your life and thank you for sharing it with us publicly. I love it. And we appreciate all the time and energy that that you put into, I mean, not only the work that you do as you were talking about, but all these extra things that I think if we all did our piece in the world, moves the needle. It changes somebody's future. Somebody's going to be reading that book and thinking about themselves differently. And I think that is the most amazing thing. So thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to the Blazing Ember podcast and our journey to empowerment. Look out for more episodes to keep your ember blazing. Visit blazingember.com where you can connect with us and share your feedback. Hasta pronto.